I give you a football reference every week with a two-minute warning, and if you're a Colts fan, you're probably not too happy today, or maybe you are. Kind of, kind of quiet, kind of quiet, right? Well, you, you, you never know when you'll get lucky and find a good quarterback. Oh, that was bad, wasn't it? Sorry. Okay, you don't want to talk about football today, do you? Greek Festival is going on this weekend uh, down 106th Street. Uh, Monty Weimer strongly recommended their baklava. So that would be at the, uh, I assume that's a Greek Orthodox church. Is that correct? So go check that out. They have tours of the sanctuary, well worth checking out. Um, remember, within uh, the Orthodox Church, um, uh, they use what are known as icons. So uh, they believe that, let me see if I can summarize it, um, that when you have a picture of someone who is uh, sainted, well, let's just, just talk about biblical figures first or the Holy Family, that within that image is now contained um, a, oh, help me out here, Pastor Ullman, what's the best way for us to explain this? Compl uh, there is a connection to the divine. Is that fair to say it that way? You're not strong on that. I had a, a gentleman I met when I was on Vicarage in Lincoln, Nebraska, who was a uh, Greek Orthodox priest. And... Um, uh, and he, he, was, he was a big uh, road motorcycles, actually bought an old Harley Sportster from him, uh, an, a, uh, an old uh, AMF uh, 78. And uh, he, he was a very interesting fellow. But when I went into his house, and even in his garage where we had four or five motorcycles, he had uh, various uh, icons, pictures all the way through the house. And so their belief was that through the image then there was now a connection of the divine, okay, so that, that God now is with you. Um, and there's some, there's some depths of, of orthodox theology we could uh, plumb, but we're not going to do that right now. Um, but uh, they do have really good food. Uh, they're, of course, still Christian, uh, Trinitarian, uh, and uh, retain, obviously, a little bit more of the Eastern rites. If you ever do go to visit one of their, their, their masses, their divine services, um, you know, uh, bring me back a bulletin if they, if they have one. Uh, but the Eastern Rite, in terms of some of the liturgy, is a little different from what we've been used to. We follow more of a Western Rite uh, in Lutheranism. Um, and, uh, and now you're ready to fall asleep, so I will stop there. <laughs> okay, before we begin into our, uh, our uh, Bible study, we're on chapter 5, by the way, of uh, Professor Marquardt's book, uh, The Saving Truth. Um, so that would be, the name of that chapter is, that's six, you got it up there? <laughs> Law, Gospel, and Means of Grace. Any questions from last week? Uh, I presented a paper that I was asked to write that was, uh, as I told you, more of an op-ed piece uh, in the sense that it was, was just a little bit of, of, of a perspective that I was asked for on my experience. Any burning questions or Rotten tomatoes, anybody wants to throw from last week? Nothing? Okay, that's fine. Um, any, oh, oh, in the back, yeah, yeah.
Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so her question for those that might be listening online um, or, or couldn't hear uh, here in our fellowship hall today was within the paper that I presented last week, uh, a comment and a footnote that I made uh, regarding how we were taught to farm out a lot of our responsibility. Um, and uh, that was a very important uh, part um, of the mission training that I was given, uh, raising up new leaders, so discipling uh, for the church growth movement uh, is always about identifying and raising up new leaders. Train your replacement first, uh, which, which there is a little bit of a, of a, of a business model to that uh, in terms of, of training up some leaders, but that obviously brings up issues in the church. Why? So, so to summar, summarize, uh, ju just for our recording mainly, um, when the church abdicates its responsibility to teach, um, there becomes a real issue because then, then the question is, do you, do you have uh, those who have been trained uh, to do so? What is being taught? Where are the checks and balances for that? Um, and uh, so, absolutely. I totally agree with you, um, and, I, and I've come into situations before, we, we don't really have that here at Advent, thank you for that. Uh, every other parish I've served has had some sort of uh, a conventicle or conventicles. Raise your hand if you know what a conventicle is. Some of the pastors do probably. The Lutheran confessions talk about conventicles, um, and a conventicle is simply a gathering of uh, you know, like-minded people or people who would believe contrary to maybe even what the church is teaching and would basically teach themselves um, and would go about their own way. So, um, you know, when we started, uh, you know, small groups can be a real blessing if you have good leaders and pastors involved. Small groups can become conventicles when people gather together simply to teach either what they believe that might be contrary or to pursue their own truth. That's a very postmodern type of thing. And so basically that's kind of what we were taught through some of the Mission Planners Institute that I went through was uh, you know, to uh, uh, have as many conventicles as possible. 
which in, in, in from, even from a business perspective was a little bit of, of, of a defeatist attitude in my opinion. Because even coming out of a, out of a, out of a business background, uh, it was important to, to, to promote uh, your intent, your, your mission, you know, uh, your vision, your values, and the business world talks this way as well. Uh, that you have some marching orders in place. So as a church, we need to be organized with that, and we have historically, uh, which is why we've had, uh, you know, those that are trained, uh, you know, to be pastors, uh, why we even have, and, and the New Testament talks about that, uh, different levels. You know, you can have uh, teaching pastors, you can have, uh, you know, pastors who serve more of a bishop role in terms of oversight, and I would say we have that in the Missouri Synod with district presidents and that sort of thing, um, all still ordained ministers. Uh, and then, of course, you've got other educated lay people as well that serve a role, right? So, you know, the other Martin, um, uh, you know, you've got Martin Chemnitz, you've got Philip Melanchthon, um, you know, there are a number of people who never really served in a pastoral role, so to speak, uh, but were <laughs> academically poof, right? Um, and, uh, and obviously very important to the church. So... Uh, yeah, good stuff. Anything else? Oh, Mrs. McKay. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Does Mission Planners Institute exist anymore? Not as it did then. Uh, now there is a mission planning training that is offered through the Center for U.S. Missions, which is actually uh, not an RSO of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate and has never been. So part of the problem is we had a number of these groups in the past that our district presidents um, allowed to take place within their districts, but they were never vetted for proper doctrine, theology, or practice, okay? So even Reverend Dr. Terry Tiemann, your cousin and mine by marriage, um, and, and we, your grandma was a Tiemann, and uh, we love that side of the family. The Tiemanns are all from Quarter, Missouri, uh, just north of Concordia, Higginsville area. That's where my, my wife uh, is from. Um, and so uh, Reverend Dr. Terry Tiemann um, uh, and, and his organization, Transforming Congregations Network, TCN, actually was removed from RSO status August of 2018, last year. And not only that, uh, Reverend Dr. Tiemann has now been placed on restrictive status, restricted status within the Mid-South District for false teaching and false theology. Um, and so that's a battle that uh, President Pavela is going through right now uh, down the Mid-South District. So, so I'm very pleased that there are some things that are being addressed um, as when there are any errors, whether with an, an individual member of synod or a, or a congregation, uh, we wanna pray for repentance. We wanna pray for you know, the correction um, and that God's word would have its way. Uh, and, and that's the goal. Um, always. So, so there, there has been a lot of um, just some false doctrine that has been allowed to creep in. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's always been that way with the church. So that should never surprise you. You know, when you hear about things like that, don't throw your arms up and say, oh, I'm going to go someplace else, or I'm going to go find the perfect denomination, or I'm going to go find the perfect parish. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. The church has, has always been about identifying and dealing with that. And it's the same in your family. How do you deal with your family members who sin against you? You just walk out, forget about them. Um, and the love you have for them usually prevents you from doing that, right? 
So the love for your Lord and the love for Holy Scripture, (laughs) you know, should also enable you to be able to address some of those things. So I do hope what I presented last week, that that you did not take it in terms of a a spiteful response or anything like that. Um, It it was simply, this this is what I experienced, and and, and this would be my, my theological reflection upon that. Um, and, 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 you know, a word of, of warning as we continue to move forward, uh, and also a focus on what's important in terms of God's word and sacrament, and I think, as Paul writes, the pattern of sound words. So. Huh. Anything else? Good, good? Okay, let's begin, shall we? The Lord be with you. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Follow along with me, if you will, in your books, uh, smart devices, or up on the screen, page 69, chapter 5, uh, Professor Marquardt, Law, Gospel, and Means of Grace. We have seen how the whole structure of Christian truth comes to a head in the work of salvation which God has accomplished for the whole world in His Son, right? So, so where does Marquardt start this chapter? This would be uh, Augustana 4. This is justification, all right? Justification is, is, is where we should always start. We have also seen that only faith is able to receive all this. The most important practical question then is this, how does faith come about and how does it stay alive? You might want to underline that or just star that. How does faith come about and how does it stay alive? Now, that's a question that gets answered by different denominations in different ways, right? So I think I told you a little bit last week about uh, how one of the, the, the challenges I had early on right at a seminary was being around a lot of people who felt that faith came in what way? Faith came by your, your decision, your work, your agreement, right? So if you remember back to when your pastors taught you confirmation, I remember uh, Reverend Howard G. Barth, Pastor Barth, he got up there on the old chalkboard at Calvary Lutheran Church, and he drew a cross on one side of the chalkboard, and he drew a little stick figure over on the left. Do you remember this, Right? And then he, he drew like a, a big V in between those two, right? And he said, this V is the, the chasm, right? And then underneath the V, I think he might have written sin or something like that. He goes, here's you, here's Jesus, right? How do you get to Jesus? And he said, some people would teach you that, that you've got to build a bridge, you know? Now, you can build a bridge about halfway, but there's no way you can reach the other side. But if you build a bridge about halfway, you know, you come out at an angle just enough from the bottom and you build your trusses and your support, if you get over there halfway, then what will Jesus do from his end of the chasm? He'll build, he'll see what you're building and he'll say, man, that's a nice bridge. Good job, good, good, good engineering design, right? That's good. So I'm going to build a bridge from the other side that's, that's going to that's meet you, right? And then, then we'll meet in the middle, and you'll be able to come over to me, and I'll be able to go over to you. <laughs> and, and Pastor Barth, he, he was a fiery old guy. 
uh, he took the eraser and he said, nope, that doesn't work. <laughs> and then he quoted a whole bunch of scripture, and Mark Hart's going to get into that, okay? You are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin. You are incapable of building any type of bridge because you're a sinner. And so what does God in his mercy and grace do for you? You know, and then, and then he, 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 he took the cross and he, he drew the cross like it was laying down, right? Have you ever seen this before? It was just kind of a neat little, neat little visual. And so Jesus now becomes the bridge between God and sinful man, okay? Only through the, the person, the life, uh, the death, the resurrection, only through the person of Jesus Christ, you know, do we have access to the Father, right? So it's only through Jesus. So it's all God's work for us that enables now the sinner to have access to God, okay? So, so, so pay attention here as, as Marquardt goes. Now, the problem is that man after the fall is spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Faith, on the other hand, is the very essence of spiritual life. As death cannot turn itself into life, therefore, so no sinful human being can stir up faith in himself or by his own powers, right? Remember the third article of the Creed? I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has enlightened me, called me by the gospel, enlightened me, sanctified me, and kept me in the one true faith, right? So Luther kind of summarizes all of that right there. Third article is a good place to go. So when you're kind of struggling with that, or when you're talking with others about that, your catechism is a, is a great tool. It really is, okay? I hope you're praying it daily in some way, shape, or form. And a shameless plug for what we're going to be doing on Wednesdays here in a couple weeks. Uh, come every Wednesday night, we're going to pray the catechism at 7 o'clock. Now, we, we could do vespers, we could do evening prayer, but Pastor Grady and I decided, you know what? We're going to pray the catechism. So we literally will pray the Catechism, Ten Commandments, all the way through. And that's actually the way the Catechism was designed to, to be used. So our hope is that that will teach some of our parents how to pray the Catechism at home with their children, uh, or even for you individually, how you can use the Catechism even throughout your daily prayer life, okay? Uh, so yeah, come join us on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock for that, okay? As death cannot turn itself into life, therefore, so no sinful human being can stir up faith in himself or by his own powers, right? So as death cannot turn itself into life, no sinful human being can stir up faith in himself or by his own powers, right? So it's not a matter of, uh, you know, the Joel Olstein school of theology. You know, have your best life now by, by looking inside yourself. Get to know yourself, right? Um, and while Dave Ramsey is one of the best, you know, I think financial guys out there, um, you know, it's <laughs> if you start with yourself and everything and getting everything, then, every, you know, getting inside of you figured out and, and, and you, you know, being committed to it, then everything else will fall into place. For a Christian, it's so much more than that, right? Faith is entirely a supernatural gift of God and must come to poor sinners from outside themselves. So justification first, then sanctification. We do talk about good works, okay? You need to be encouraged to do good works, okay? Uh, even the new Adam in you, there's an exhortation, there is an important third use of the law, okay? So we're not antinomians in that regard, and we've, we've started to get into this a little bit. 
You should, you should hear about doing good works. You should be encouraged to do them. They should be identified even what they are, okay? Even from the pulpit, okay? And, and that's not an anti-gospel thing. That's the work of the gospel, okay? So faith is entirely a supernatural gift of God and must come to poor sinners from outside themselves. So everything is extranos, right? Outside. The truth of the matter is that God gives faith through his word, Romans 10, 17, Right? Faith comes from hearing the word. So Jesus is the Logos. And, and this is where a lot of Christians totally miss the boat. So Holy Scripture, that's the word, right? Jesus is the word. And so, you know, we believe that word uh, because it is divine. It is holy, okay? Uh, and we pay special attention to it uh, because it, it, it's, it's the word of God. So this preliminary answer, however, must be explained further. The fact is that there are two quite different words of God. Only one of them, the gospel, offers life and salvation and therefore creates faith. The other is the law, which cannot give salvation. And to this most fundamental distinction, we must now turn. Okay? So two main teachings of Scripture. Go back to catechism class. Law and gospel. Okay? Uh, or as Marquardt says, two quite different words plural of God. Law and gospel distinguished. John 1.17, let's read it together. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The St. Paul insists everywhere that salvation comes not by way of the law, but by way of promise. The contrast is that between demand and gift. What an enormous difference it makes whether the saving righteousness of God, Romans 1.17, is the righteousness which He requires of us or the righteousness which He freely gives us in His Son. All right? Now, if you've been to early service, you've heard this already. Okay? One of the linchpin passages, Romans uh, chapter 9, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Israel, uh, the Jews, if you will, or let's just, let's just say the people of God, okay? Uh, Judaism really didn't develop until, you know, uh, the, the age of, of the rabbis, if you will, just, just prior to uh, the time of Jesus and afterwards. Uh, but uh, they, had, they had the writings, they had the Old Testament canon, um, why did they not attain to righteousness? Simple answer. Because they believed righteousness was about what? What they would do. Got it? So, so think, think of the time we're studying uh, the book of Isaiah in our Tuesday morning Bible study. Um, and you know, we've heard about all that transpired prior uh, to uh, now uh, the Babylonian captivity, uh, you know, both for the northern and the southern kingdom uh, being carried away, being ransacked. And, and during, during the time of the exile, uh, as it were, uh, there were over 600 law codes that were written down that were not necessarily from Scripture. So uh, the Jews basically in, in, in exile now gave themselves additional laws that had to be kept. They brought those with them uh, back. There were, there were many good reforms that were attempted, but some of that was never clean, cleansed completely. Um, and so, you know, thus Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. 
you know, thus Jesus goes uh, there to the temple and drives out the money changers, right? Uh, because now their concept of faith and righteousness is no longer built upon God's word and what he has promised to do and what he will now do through the son that stands there physically, uh, incarnately, uh, before them, uh, but rather that these uh, believers began to trust in themselves and in their works rather than a righteousness that comes simply by faith. So here you have Gentiles who have never grown up with this, never brought a a, a little lamb, a ram, pigeons, or grain offerings, or any of these things to the temple, had never done any of that, had never observed any of the, the holy days, and now all of a sudden they're righteous before the one holy God? Yes. Why? Because of faith. Because they believe that that God the Father through His Son had now crossed the chasm of sin and death to reach them and to save them. That they were justified, declared not guilty because of Christ and not themselves. And so that's why we talk so much about justification. Sometimes you might get tired of hearing it. Oh, Oh, that was kind of a boring Bible class again. We hear that Jesus died for us, man. Pastor's always going on in his sermons about what God through Jesus Christ has done. I need something else. No, you don't. <laughs> that, that should be enough. I mean, but the sin, for the sinner in you, of course, because the sinner is all about self-justification. The sinner is all about, you know, the lawyer standing before Jesus and, hey, Jesus... Look at all, hey, let me show you my resume, Jesus. Let me show you all the degrees I've got. And let me show you all these great places I worked, you know. Oh, I worked my way up, fill in the blank, right? All the way up through whatever's important to you, okay? Look, look at me, Jesus. Man, I'm good. <laughs> and Jesus identifies your self-justification, bless you, Jesus identifies uh, your self-justification and says, okay, so then go and do what? Keep all the law if you think you can, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, you know, soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, I mean, you can't do that, right? Um, so, okay. Questions or comments here? Law and gospel distinguished. So what an enormous difference it makes whether the saving righteousness of God is the righteousness which He requires of us or the righteousness which He freely gives to us in His Son. That now is the difference between life and death, Marquardt writes, between heaven and hell, between salvation and damnation. Now knowing how to to distinguish and apply these two very different things, what God demands, right, law, and what He gives, gospel, is the very vital art of all spiritual life. The afflicted must be comforted with the gospel, and the comfortable must be afflicted with the law. Between these two poles, the Christian's whole existence oscillates, right? And the engineers are going to love these two sentences, right? The current is produced precisely by the tension between the two poles, right? So can we talk positive-negative here, engineering folks, electrical people, okay? Uh, Trying to even out 
the contrast by turning gospel into law or vice versa, or both into something neutral in between destroys everything. So although both law and gospel are both the word of God, there is no equality or symmetry between them. God speaks his law word for the sake of his gospel word and not the other way round. It is, and this is a quote here, uh, this would be from uh, Apology Article 12, our Lutheran Confessions. You want to read it with me? God's alien, strange, or foreign work to terrify because God's own proper work is to quicken and console. But he terrifies to make room for consolation and quickening because hearts that do not feel God's wrath in their smugness spurn consolation. These are the two chief works of God in men, to terrify and to justify and quicken the terrified. One or the other of these works is spoken of throughout Scripture. One part is the law, which reveals, denounces, and condemns sin. The other part is the gospel, that is the promise of grace granted in Christ. So if this is so, then law and gospel are not simply major features among others in Holy Scripture, but its sole content, right? And let's read, uh, this is from Apology uh, 4 altogether. All Scripture should be divided into these two chief doctrines, the law and the promises. Now, but this distribution into law and gospel must not be thought of in mechanical terms, Sorry, engineers. So many verses law, the rest gospel. Some texts, of course, are clearly and expressly law, while others are just as clearly gospel. Yet the one always requires the other. The law, since it cannot give life, calls for the gospel. The gospel assumes that there is dire need for mercy. In other words, sin and law are understood. Okay. Comments or questions before we move on to the next paragraph? You picking up what he's laying down here so far? You're like, I've got, this. I've heard this before. This sounds really familiar. What well, should, because I know here at Advent, this is, this is what you've been taught and catechized, okay? And thanks be to God for that. So it is futile, therefore, to snatch up some obscure verse in Leviticus or Numbers and ask, is this law or gospel? And if you ever do this in Bible study, it, it can get to be a little bit of a challenge sometimes, right? Is this first law or is this first gospel? Um, it... It's probably both. Two things must be kept in mind here. One is that sentences in the Bible are not isolated logical atoms. They are part of an intricate tapestry of which Christ is the theme, John 5, 39, and human salvation the purpose, 2 Timothy 3, 15. What's he saying here before I read on? How would you summarize what he's saying so far? Why not? Why not? Uh, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yes, but, but, but why? Go back to what we, we just, in my little introduction, as we talked about. Who is the Word and what is the Word? And faith is created How? Okay, let me, let me remind you of a passage, right? Uh, the Word will always achieve the purpose for which I 
you know this one? Send it. Right? So the word will never return empty or void. The word of God is always going to do its thing because it is living and active. Right? So what we study is not a dead historical document. So I've had this chat sometimes with, with, with young pastors who have either come to me or, you know, oh, this is a law text. How am I going to get the gospel in here to, you know, that I'm like, just preach the text. Trust that the Word of God will do that work for which it says it's going to do. Okay? Now, there's, and we'll get, he's going to get into some of the uses, if you will, of, of the law. You know, we talk about first, first use, second use, third use. There actually are some traditions that have more uses for the law than that. And, and, and in a week or two, Monty Weimer will give us that uh, uh, dissertation. No, you won't, but <laughs> he and I have been studying that a little bit. There actually have been four or five uses at various times in history that have been identified as the law. Uh, but the point is this, you know, what use of the law am I preaching? God will do His work, right? So our job is to faithfully identify as much as we can um, the, uh, the, the one sense, right, uh, the, the literal sense, what this Scripture passage is, is, is getting at. If there's connections we have to the rest of Scripture, preach that and the Lord will work through that. Okay. Now let's move on because maybe I lost you. It is futile, therefore, to snatch up some obscure verse in Leviticus or Numbers and ask, is this law or gospel? It's probably both. Two things must be kept in mind here. One is that sentences in the Bible are not isolated logical atoms. They are part of an intricate tapestry of which Christ is the theme and human salvation the purpose. Remember what I told you last week about studying the Bible? And I showed you the African or the Ubuntu Bible study method that I was taught through Mission Planners Institute that you should go around the room, and what does this mean to me? You know, how do I understand that? Is that the right way to study Scripture? It's, it's not, that's not the right way. It's not the best way. What's the best way to study Scripture? What does this passage say about who? Jesus. Right? And so just to emphasize for you, this is one of the reasons the Jews wanted to get rid of Jesus. Because they put his hands on top of all the Old Testament scrolls and said, these testify to me. And they're like, what? The Bible's about you? No, the Bible's about me. The Bible's about how I, I have to build a bridge to get over to God by my righteousness and my works. You see that? We might learn a little bit about the Messiah, but it's ultimately about me. See, that's, that's self-justification. So if you really want to pick up what's going on in the Bible, where's Waldo? Not really Waldo. Where's Jesus? What is this passage, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, teaching me about Christ? Okay? All right, hang on to that. Second, sentences, so to tear the biblical sentences out of the web of the grand design in which they are embedded is to destroy their meaning, right? So that's, you know, we might use the term proof texting. 
I don't think that's the best summary of doing that anymore, uh, but some will do that. And if you ever, you know, engaged in discussion or debate with people, they'll kind of drop proof text or, you know, text back and forth. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a context, obviously, to all of that. Uh, and so that needs, to be, that needs to be understood. But where, where is Christ? You know, where's Waldo in the midst of all that? Second, sentences in longer passages of the Bible are trivialized if they are taken simply as bits of information, however interesting. God's purpose in giving his word is not to tickle curious minds, much less to satisfy academic, uh, uh, how do you say that word? Pedantry? Or is it pedantry? Smarter people than me? Nothing? Pedantry? Okay. I'm pretty sure I know what it means, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. But to rescue sinners by calling them to contrition and faith. A genuine encounter with God's truth, therefore, dear, never results in the shallow grasp, quote, how fascinating. It must rather wring from us St. Paul's twofold response. And let's read this together from Romans 7, the old King James Version. Here we go. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Luther, therefore, urges a garland of four strands as a fruitful approach to biblical study. This means finding in the text first some instruction, right? And, and, and this, is, this is why you really truly, and I, I would just encourage you this <laughs> in everything you do. Be a student. Don't assume that you've learned everything. You know, be willing to admit you know, when you're wrong or just that you don't know stuff, that's okay, right? If you, if you don't regularly use the word pedantry, that's okay, all right? There's people that might understand the word and know how to pronounce it. So, so, so it, be humble and, and be a student, right, and learn. That's one of the best things you can do. You young folks that are here, pay attention. Don't arrive, you know, in your classroom thinking you know more than your teacher. Or if your teacher says one wrong thing, assume they have nothing to teach you. Even if you disagree with them on, or even if they are wrong on some things, they might have other things you can learn. All right, talk to your pastors and, you know, or your parents, I mean, come vent to your pastors if you want to complain and whine. We'll, we'll listen and then we'll, we'll direct you another way. But Okay, so, um, well, okay, find the text. First, some instruction. Second, and look at what Luther does here, a reason for thanksgiving. That's interesting how Luther does this, right? Uh, find some reason to give thanks, right? Did you know the Lord's Supper uh, is also known as the Eucharist? Do you know what Eucharist means? To give thanks. Eucharizo literally means to give thanks, right? Um, so, so we are receiving that which God has, and, 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 and we, are, we are giving thanks. So, so Luther's teaching us a, a, a little liturgical action here as well. Third, it's an occasion for confession. Fourth, a cause of prayer. So studying the Bible, Luther says, number one, instruction. Number two, a reason for thanksgiving. Number three, confession, which now becomes a little more personal. What, what sins, where have I erred? Okay. And fourth now, a cause of prayer. Meaning now, communication, talking to your Father who is in heaven. Okay? Even though he already knows everything, he invites you to speak with him. Okay? 
and, and, and prayer, uh, you know, I just kind of explain it this way. And if you're married, you know exactly what this is all about. Or if you're in a family, you know what this is about. There needs to be communication, right? Um, you know, how do your parents feel when your, you know, kids don't tell you where they're at or what they're doing? Oh, just wait, Neil, they will get older. And you may ask them to tell you what they're doing and where they're doing. And you might have trackers on their phone that they know how to disable and do all that. But <laughs> communication, <laughs> am I going too far? Communication is an important thing, okay? It's important for parents to communicate with their, with their kids in, you know, communication. So think of that with God. He invites you to communicate with Him, okay? Husbands and wives, you know all about this, Okay? You can act a certain way for several days, but eventually your spouse is going to realize there's something going on, right? And they're finally going to say, what's up? And then you have a decision, okay? Whether you're a husband or a wife, to do what? Tell them what's going on that you haven't told them yet, okay? And if you've learned anything, those of you who've been married a little while, you, you learn that uh, it's good for the marriage when you finally share some things, right? Or at least share what you can right? So obviously, did I drive mom out already? Okay. You know, I mean, as a pastor, I can't share with my wife everything. So she's learned that there's some things that, you know, are, you know, just, I grieve with somebody who has come and confessed to sin. And I can't, I can't tell her all the details of that. I won't. Not, oh, there you are staying in the back. Okay. And so she knows to support. And then I'll just kind of say, you know, it's, I can't go into detail of it, you know, whatever. This is kind of what's bothering me, you know. And then we, you know, we'll talk about it, you know, uh, sometimes pray about it. So, but, but communicate. So your Father in Heaven asks and invites you to do the same thing, okay? And so it's okay to talk about the word relationship when we talk about who we are as Christians with God. That word doesn't turn me off as much as it does some confessional pastors, because you do have a relationship with your Father in Heaven, with the Triune God, okay? Um, and, and, and that means certain things, it means how you communicate. It should mean a dedicated prayer life, um, and it, it should mean all those other things, okay? All right, any comments on that? I got a little off track there, I'm sorry, but okay. All right, so in this way, these four uh, reasons that Luther gives... God's personal address in law and gospel is heard, and the text does not become the plaything of cerebral games, right? Uh, which is why I would say the Bible uh, is, <laughs> there's not an age, you know, distinction on it. You know, even the, uh, you know, a two-year-old in, in church playing with, you know, whatever types of toys or, or eating Cheerios or that mushy cereal stuff, that the stuff in the can, that used to be really good. That was kind of like, a, what was that, Apple? Not Apple Jacks. Uh, what were those? They were sweet little nuggets of, oh, Mom gave them to you when you guys were little. They were so good. I think I ate more of those than you did when you were little. But so you've got a two-year-old in the pew, and they don't know what's going on in church. They don't understand it yet. They might have a vocabulary at two years old of maybe, what, 10, 15 words? You know, some of them maybe more if you've got, you know, some, you're blessed with smart kids. Um, but the word is there. You see the difference in the word is doing its work, okay? And now the elders are talking about, about getting, you know, a, a staff nursery together. Would some of you, do you think we need 
Uh, I mean, is there a need for a staff nursery? Can I ask that question in the middle of all this? You know, we want to provide for, for either single parents or those who, who have some challenges with kids or for new folks that are coming. You know, we used to have a staff nursery, but even like during Bible class hour, you got little kids. Sometimes it's tough to do that. Uh, we want the kids to be in church, right? Why? Because we believe the Word of God does what? It's creating faith. It's not based on their understanding. Okay, so with little kids at home, and, and maybe you didn't start doing this until you got grandkids, you know, read them the Bible. Read to them. It's the same reason people started putting earphones on the mama's belly, you know, belting out, you know, rock me Amadeus, or not rock me Amadeus, but Mozart or Beethoven or Bach, right? Why? Because there was a connection between, you know, the purpose of, uh, of music and rhythm and, and all that. It's the same, you know, scripture is even more so that way. So, uh, you know, we had this this last week. We were talking with uh, preschool teachers. Um, you know, we, we, we asked them as pastors to uh, slowly introduce the Ten Commandments into the classroom. Um, well, are, the, are, are three, four, five-year-olds going to understand, you know, the difference between coveting a neighbor's wife versus coveting their house? No. They're not at that stage of logic nor rhetoric. So why should they learn the Ten Commandments? Why? Why would it be good to teach a three, four, or five-year-old the Ten Commandments? No one? Okay, so hopefully they'll have that buried into the back of their brain when they get older so we can build on it. But what's the other reason? The yes. So this is the learn by heart, which was simply means learn by faith. It means the Word is doing its work through that, right? So they get up there and they recite it, right? Uh, and do they understand all of it? No. But yet, what do they have in their very mouths? The Word of God, which is also who? Oh, are you telling me that there's something supernatural and amazing, miraculous taking place when the Word of God is read or said? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, because that's what we believe as Lutherans. The Bible is not just stories. I mean, it is, it is Christ that is there. Okay, so, so just meditate. Meditate on where Marquardt and, and Luther here are going with this. Okay, where are we at on time? Okay. So, if Christ really is the all-pervasive theme of Scripture, hang on to this now, and if God's written word is not an impersonal philosophy but speaks to us judgment and salvation, then something very crucial follows. What follows is that not some Lutheran insight, but Scripture itself demands the law-gospel distinction as an especially brilliant light to reveal the true and intended sense of the biblical text. Texts that seem at first to lack any express law or gospel must therefore be seen as both rather than neither. Law and gospel in such cases are related to each other, not like adjacent patches of ground, but as different dimensions or aspects of the same ground. The law is the Christian truth under the aspect of God's justice, severity, and wrath, while the gospel is this same truth, but under the aspect of His undeserved grace and mercy in Christ. 
For the historical narratives in Scripture, this means a great deal of overlap between law and gospel. The accounts of the Lord's suffering, crucifixion, and death, for example, is first of all the most terrible preaching of the law, for it shows the full extent of God's just anger over sin. Okay? So, so not terrible preaching as in, oh, wow, that was really bad. <laughs> terrible in terms of, you got it? Okay. Um, this account uh, for the most terrible preaching. All this is still Moses. It is Christ's alien work, not the real point and purpose of his mission. His own real work is the grace and forgiveness which he has won by his cross. And, and make sure you circle that because that's a conjunction. If you remember your English, they go together. Which he now distributes through his word and sacraments. And this is the preaching of the gospel, strictly speaking. You got it? Let me read that again. His own real work is the grace and forgiveness which he has won by his cross and which he now distributes through his word and sacraments. And this is the preaching of the gospel, strictly speaking. Okay? So it's not just about talking and telling about Jesus. It's about giving Jesus. Right? So true mission work, and this is just maybe to tie up a couple loose ends from the paper I presented last week, mission work is, is really all about what? What's the goal? What's the goal? You can order it online at Amazon, but what? The money can be taken out of your bank account. You can order that Pampered chef, microwavable, vegetable, wonderful thing, whatever that's called, that you accidentally left on the stove when it was turned on. It was your wife's favorite kitchen utensil, and it burned a hole in the bottom of it. And so you thought to yourself, do I tell her about it? I mean, if I can find it on Amazon, it'll be here tomorrow or the day after. But this is an amazing little piece of technology. I mean, five minutes in the microwave with a tablespoon of water and the vegetables are really good, right? And you can order it and the money can come out of your bank account, but you're not going to be in good graces with your wife until what? Until it's in the cupboard. Until it's able to be used. Are you picking up what I'm laying down here? So you can talk all about the gospel you want, but the gospel has to be delivered. So word and sacraments is, is not intended to be some cerebral, academic you know, type of thing. I mean, it is designed to be used in that way, but it, it ultimately has to be delivered. It has to be given through the preaching, right? In baptism, in your mouth, okay? All right. Any questions or comments there? Disagree. It's okay if you have a disagreement. I'm okay with that. We can talk about it. No, you're all good. All right. Okay. So, and this is the preaching of the gospel, strictly speaking. Now, like many other terms, law and gospel both have narrow and broad senses. In the broad sense, gospel means the whole doctrine of Christ, including the law. And that would be like in Mark 1, verse 1. 
But when repentance, in other words, law, is distinguished from believing the gospel, as in Mark 1.15, and you can look that up this week, then gospel is used in its stricter, narrow sense of forgiveness and life in Christ. In the broad sense, therefore, law and gospel mean the same thing, that is, Christian doctrine as a whole, right? So just so you know, there is a broad sense of the term law and gospel, okay, Uh, or even where gospel can include uh, the term law. In their proper or strict senses, however, law and gospel are the most irreconcilable opposites, more than contradictories. If the subscript S and B stand for strict and broad senses respectively, thank you, uh, engineers. I told you you would like this lesson today. A precise formula can be given. LS plus GS equals LB equals GB. Got it? Just, Just nod your head. Okay. Now, this implies, it should be noted, that justification is the chief article, but not the only article of the gospel in the strict sense. A good rule of thumb is Luther's treatment of the first two chief parts in his large catechism. How many of you have read the large catechism? You need to get busy. Um, All all of us, obviously, have have been trained in the small catechism. The large catechism is, is you need to read it. Okay, it's really good. Stuff. It's the best place to start, actually, if you want to read the Lutheran Confessions. Okay, enough of that because we're out of time. Um, so the Ten Commandments are the law in the strict sense, and the Trinitarian Creed confesses the gospel in the strict sense. So Luther there will highlight that the law uh, is best learned in a strict sense from the Ten Commandments. So why would we want three, four, and five-year-olds to learn the Ten Commandments? Are you picking this up? Okay, one, they can memorize things really quickly. Look at how quickly they remember the bad word that came out of your mouth. Okay? I mean, they pick it up. Okay? So, so give it to them early. Okay? Same thing with the creed. Creed is pure gospel. Okay. Let's end there. Questions or comments for today? Marquardt shook your world up a little bit. Or it could have been my bad representation of him. Okay, we'll pick up with the moral law on page 72 next week. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, pay attention to your announcements. we got uh, lots of things going on the next couple of weeks. Pastor Grady, any closing announcements you want to add before we pray? Oh, yeah, golf outing. Oh, no, we need to have a golf. We got it. We're going to play golf either way. So... Uh, register for the golf outing. You can do that online. If you don't know how to go online and do that, call one of us. Uh, we'll get you set up for that. That's to uh, support our Lutheran Heritage Tours and just have a good time, okay? Uh, don't also, also forget we've got our uh, uh, congregational picnic, which is the same day as Rally Day uh, for Sunday school and all that stuff. That's September 8th. And uh, we'll take uh, fifth, grade, fifth graders through high schoolers uh, during a portion of that uh, Sunday school hour and teach them about acolyting and uh, what it means to be crucified, I mean to carry the cross and be a crucifer. Um, sometimes they think that's what it means, but uh, okay. Any other announcements? Let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.